Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour from CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto or on many much-appreciated radio syndicate partners across the country or on a podcast, this radio show that becomes a podcast. Um, and I'm David Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And although later on you will be listening to Stefan Hostetter, right now it's just David and myself as your hosts, for better or for worse. Thanks for, for joining us this week. And Stefan's going to be interviewing uh, Eric Bachman, who is the principal. What does it mean to be a principal of a company? I don't know, but did you ever watch Silicon Valley? Because there's a character on that show called Ehrlich Bachman, and he was also in tech. I think this human being is modeled after that fictional character. Excellent. That makes total sense. Really excited for that interview. Eric Bachman, the principal and CTO of KOTU Rail, and they'll be talking about their train-based direct air capture technology. So this is this is technology that's mounted to a train or is a train, I don't know, but it's something to do with a train and it's sucking carbon pollution out of the air. So Stefan's going to be talking to him about that soon. But first we're going to do some climate and energy news and then we're going to briefly extract some of the climate initiatives being promised by the various Canadian federal parties because the election is about to happen in a few days. Yeah, if you are listening to this live on Friday, it's happening on Monday. So remember that you should go vote. But also, like, I don't know, if you're like an anarchist or you don't believe in the voting system, I'm not going to personally hold that against you either. <laughs> it's hard to not be cynical in the in the year of our Lord 2021. Let's be okay, real. Yes, it's been it's been 200. It's been 2021 years since... Uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, and we're dealing with climate change now. I think it's the birth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's like, it's like, wait, what was that? Because it used to be like AD. Like now it's like we're in 2021 BCE. Well, yeah, AD, no, AD. no, no. Now we're in 2021 CE, which is common era. Yeah. But before that, it used to be like, it would be like 500 BCE. E, which is before common era and then it used to be like 2021 ad which was after death no 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 no. ad is like a latin or it's one of those languages one of those strange scholarly languages and it oh, means okay. the year of our lord as you've just stated according to philip k dick we're actually still in biblical times Now we're going to do some, we're doing climate news now, right? Perfect. Okay, so as concluded by a study published in Geophysical Research Letters at the end of August, the Pyrenean glaciers, the largest glaciers in southern Europe, lost 23.3% of their area from 2011 to 2020 and lost 6.3 meters in thickness. Spain recently deployed its military to battle a huge wildfire which has so far caused the evacuation of 2,500 people. A new assessment from NOAA in the United States has determined that the summer of 2021 is tied for the hottest summer on record for the country. It is tied with the infamous Dust Bowl summer of 1936. Global Witness is reporting that 2020 
saw a record number of environmental activists murdered around the globe. 227 environmental defenders were murdered last year, with a third of the killings linked to resource extraction. The report reads, quote, Defenders are our last line of defense against climate breakdown. We can take heart from the fact that even after decades of violence, people continue to stand up for their land and for our planet. In every story of defiance against corporate theft and land grabbing, against deadly pollution and against environmental disaster, is hope that we can turn the tide on this crisis and learn to live in harmony with the natural world. Until we do, the violence will continue. Here in Canada, the tar sands pipeline known as the Trans Mountain Expansion, which is owned by our government, is being built through BC, and workers have been putting up big blue fencing around the protesters that have been occupying treetops along the pipeline's route through Burnaby. The company needs to cut down around 1,300 trees in the area, but it's hard to do that with people inhabiting them, so they have built fences around the trees to prevent people from bringing food and water to the protesters. Our Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson of Trudeau's Liberals recently stated that the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, once completed by the end of next year, could continue operating for the next 40 years. According to the study in the journal Nature that we mentioned last week, as stated by Brian Hill for Global News, quote, 84% of Canada's 49 billion barrels of proven oil sand reserves and nearly two-thirds of global oil supplies must remain unextracted to avoid temperatures rising 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That target was set, of course, at the 2015 Paris Climate Change Summit. At present, Canada's oil sands produce about 3 million barrels of oil a day, according to National Resources Canada. And at that rate, according to the Nature study, Canada would exceed the total amount of oil it can extract without exceeding its Paris Agreement targets sometime in early 2029. But according to Wilkinson, Trans Mountain could keep pumping oil to the coast all the way through 2060. The Green Party, led by Annemi Paul, is the only party that has so far committed to cancelling the pipeline. The insurance giant Chubb, meanwhile, has become the 16th insurance company to state that it will not insure Trans Mountain. Chubb has been the target of activist campaigning, which is why Trans Mountain asked the Canada Energy Regulator earlier this year to rule that they do not have to publicly disclose their insurance providers, and the regulator granted this request. More recently, the Canada Energy Regulator decided that TC Energy also does not have to publicly disclose its insurance providers, even though the company could not, provo- could not prove that it was at any financial risk from doing so. John Woodside quotes industry analyst Kyle Gracie for the National Observer as saying, quote, There is a significant public benefit in knowing who these insurers are because of the danger that fossil fuel infrastructure poses in the first place. Knowing who is involved in causing harm to you is a pretty reasonable expectation. And finally, an Ontario court has ruled that Doug Ford's government broke the law when it fast-tracked environmentally risky developments using ministerial zoning orders, or MZOs, that allowed the projects to bypass environmental regulations, review, and public consultation. And you might remember Stefan interviewing Emma McIntosh several times about these ministerial zoning orders and the way that Doug Ford was using them to, um, to develop 
uh, against environmental regulations. And now Doug Ford has been told no. Well, hey, I mean, always a good thing when Doug Ford is being told no. We can't tell him no often enough. Um, Yeah. uh, So as for any comments or statements I can make on that, I am sick to death of talking about TMX, about the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. I wish we could just put it to bed and be done with it. But of course we can't. So of course, that's the one thing I'm going to comment on. Um, And I'm I'm just... mm, I mean, we, we know the liberal government is in support of this pipeline. They purchased it. They've, they've defended the purchase a gazillion times over the last several years. Their support for this pipeline isn't going anywhere. But it is just so ridiculous and so frustrating to hear Wilkinson continue to sort of like pull out these bad, uh, not even talking points, but like trying to rationalize this purchase and rationalize them backing it up over and over and over again. And this recent statement made this week about uh, the lifeline for this pipeline and seeing it last over 30 to 40 years is just is so bananas because it flies in the face of everything that he says we're trying to do in terms of like getting to net zero by 2050. Um, <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. I don't I don't know how much he thinks net is going into that zero um, clearly more than I do, but it's so, so the full statement, which is like what like stopped me in my tracks and gave me pauses, what you're going to see, or what you're going to start to see is declining demand for oil over the coming 30 years, 40 years, perhaps in the context of some of the developing countries, Wilkinson said. And so in that context, I would say that utilization of the trans mountain pipeline is probably in that order of 30 to 40 years. And it's like, which is it dude? Are, are we going to see are we going to see demand for for oil and gas decline or are we going to see this pipeline last for the next four decades because it is it's going to it's going to double what does it say this article says it's going to turn our uh turn the pipeline's current capacity from 300,000 barrels a day to 890,000 barrels um and it just it <laughs> when we know that our demand is going to go down and other developing nations demand is going to go down then clearly we're not looking to ship this oil into developed nations. We're looking to ship it to the global South and to those countries that we would previously have called developing or sort of like in that process. And there's this gross hope that we're going to be able to prop up the industry by exporting all this oil that we aren't burning here for the next four decades. And like, at, and like my, my sort of my understanding and my analysis of this statement and, and sort of what he's saying with it is that either at best, Wilkinson sort of misunderstands how global net zero can realistically work. And at worst, he's like, there's this willful hope that by shoving emissions into like a global corner, that Canada can stave off the worst of the climate crisis, which is like, not only despicable, but just like, abjectly incorrect, and not how carbon emissions, and climate change and global warming works. So it's just it's, I, I don't understand how in what world this statement that he's made makes sense. And then on the other hand, juxtaposing him, because, of course, we're in an election right now. Um, we have Rosemary Barton, who's been doing these great um, face-to-face interviews with each of the party leaders this past week. And just the other day, um, they released their interview with Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, obviously, where she and she like point blank tries to get a response from him as to whether or not he would support TMX trans mountain pipeline expansion going forward like not whether he did or whether he does but like if he were prime minister what would you do with this pipeline and he refuses to give her a real answer because again by doing so it's like there's this perceived notion that he's that like he doesn't want to alienate either the climate community and the environmentalists or alienate like the labor movement and steel workers 
And, and as a result, I think what he's actually doing is just pissing everybody off and making sure that nobody feels satisfied with his, with his answers or with his loyalty, um, or with his truthfulness. So I'm sick of TMX. I want to stop talking about it, but we're going to have to continue to talk about it. And that's just so annoying. All right. So now we're just going to briefly look at the party platforms, the climate endeavors, initiatives, plans, whatever the parties are saying, only four parties. Um, and most of this information I'm getting from Natasha Bolowski's National Observer article, and I've added a couple other uh, pieces of information as well that she did not include. So I'm just going to go through all, f- all four of them, the Liberals, Conservatives, NDP, and Green in a row here. So uh, the Liberals are pledging, of course, uh, to reduce Canada's Canada's carbon emissions. I suppose one would ostensibly attribute it to all the emissions Canada is responsible for. However, as you just pointed out, Lauren, perhaps they're in the exporting of the of the Trans Mountain expansion uh, tar sands, bitumen, or, or or refined oil. However, they've done it. Maybe that doesn't even count for Canada's emissions. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it would. From my understanding, like my rudimentary understanding of carbon accounting, basically it's like wherever the carbon meets its kind of like endpoint in the emissions path, that's where it's calculated from what I understand. So anything that we export, yes, we calculate the emissions from digging it up. Um, and maybe if the exporting company is based out of here, then we would count it. But if it goes overseas and is burned overseas, then and we don't, we aren't responsible for those emissions from an, from a carbon accounting standpoint. Yeah. So none of these ambitions to reduce our, our emissions that these parties are pledging even include, uh, the trans, the, the emissions caused by the burning of the, of the fuel that's being transported by the Transmount expansion pipeline. Cause we're going to sell that overseas. All right. So the liberals are pledging 40 to 45 percent uh, to reduce Canada's emissions from 40 between 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And 2005 levels are now what every party is using um, as a benchmark. So 40 to 45 percent below by 2030. Uh, they're pledging 7.5 billion dollars for climate initiatives over the next five years. Um, slow, they're going to slowly increase their carbon tax to $170 a ton by 2030. They plan to end fossil fuel subsidies by 2023. Uh, they plan for a carbon-free power grid by 2035, and this will include small nuclear reactors. Uh, they're pledging $2 billion to help Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, and Labrador transition away from fossil fuels, which provide a lot of jobs for them. And they're going to preserve 25% of all Canadian ecosystems by 2030. And they're going to slightly expand our oil and gas production. The Conservatives are planning, uh, want to reduce emissions to 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. They want a maximum $50 per ton carbon tax. They want a carbon tariff on certain imports. Uh, they pledge $5 billion dollars to invest in technologies that capture carbon pollution as it emerges from industrial activity, known as carbon capture and storage, Uh, $3 billion for ecosystem restoration, 
They want to reduce the amount of pollution created by transport fuels by 20% by 2030, also known as reducing the carbon intensity of these fuels. And they want to preserve 17% of Canadian land, and they will expand oil and gas production. The NDP uh, wants to reduce our emissions by 50% by 50 below 2005 levels by 2030. They want to establish an independent office to make sure these targets are met. Keep, they want to keep the same carbon pricing as the Liberals, but tax a greater portion of industrial emissions. Uh, they will reduce. They will introduce a national carbon budget, as well as carbon budgets for each sector. They will retrofit all buildings in Canada by 2050. Uh, and they want to invest in energy storage for wind and solar rather than increasing nuclear. Uh, and they will preserve 30% of all Canadian ecosystems by 2030. And the Green Party, finally, pledges to reduce emissions by 60% below 2005 levels by 2030. They want to slowly increase the carbon tax to $250 per ton by 2030. They would also like to introduce a carbon tariff. Uh, they would end all fossil fuel subsidies and, and end all new fossil fuel infrastructure and phase out the production of bitumen between 2030 and 2035. They would replace every high-paying fossil fuel sector job with a high-paying green sector job, their words. They would implement a national carbon budget. They would retrofit all existing buildings. They would ban the sale of all fossil fuel passenger vehicles by 2030. And they would want to make the electricity grid 100% renewable by 2030 with no new nuclear and establish an office of environmental justice. Okay, so I think I'm going to start with the targets. Realistically, we, we don't actually have that much time to go over everything. So my statements will be brief. Um, the main thing with the targets that's causing a lot of uproar in my neck of the woods from a professional standpoint is um, this notion that the CBC, uh, the Canadian, uh, sorry, the Conservatives, I was trying to go by acronyms and it just doesn't work, um, that the Conservatives would revert us back to the Harbour era Paris target, uh, which is a reduction of that 30% by, uh, by 2030 level. And what this would mean is that we would be walking back um, our official Paris pledge because in April, um, the Trudeau government put forward that like our official like set in stone 2030 reduction um, for kind of at the unit at the UN level would be that 40 to 45 percent window so what O'Toole is saying is that if he were put in power it, that would be pulled back to to 30 percent um and unfortunately there isn't any real penalty to this other than us looking like dickheads um on the international stage basically because the Paris targets aren't legally binding um this wouldn't result in any sort of tangible penalty and it's sort of like between between the threat of this and those lost trump years we can very clearly see why having a legally binding target would have been valuable going into this decade but alas so um yeah that's a big scary thing that a lot of people are worried about because um there's a there's a lot that um i'm skeptical of when it comes to the plans that are put forward and the platforms that are put forward by these parties and all the pledges they make um especially as it pertains to climate, because it's so easy. And we've, we've seen over the last several years, it's so easy to go back on those promises, whether it be something like drinking water on reserves or um, uh, 
uh, electoral reform, it's really, really easy to put out a lot of really gorgeous rhetoric during an election period and then either intentionally or unintentionally not fulfill that promise once you're elected. So a, a lot of those sort of like individual policy points they throw out in these um, platforms, I'm I'm skeptical of and wary of, but where it actually does kind of like the rubber hits the road for me is in the assessment of this target of, of these targets that they put forward, because that demonstrates to me the level of ambition they're willing to commit. Um, so so th- those to me are sort of like a valid metric to read into. Um, I guess another example of why I'm so skeptical <laughs> with the individual policy points they put forward is, is this idea of fossil fuel subsidy phase out, which is, is great to hear that this is finally like really solidly in the discourse um, and that parties are starting to take it seriously. But where I get concerned is, um, is in the definition of fossil fuel subsidy, setting aside the definition of like an inefficient fossil fuel subsidy, which is what Trudeau pledged to get rid of for the longest time. This idea of a fossil fuel subsidy is a tricky one because the definition um, really, really fluctuates depending on which government you are a part of, which department within that government you are a part of. Um, if you're not in government um, in your civil society, the definition can change um, because it, it depends whether it's strictly the government spending that money or if it is a crown corporation that is spending that money, um, if it is a if it is viewed to be direct subsidization of the sort of like carbon emitting operations of that company. So for instance, a lot of um, environmental nonprofits consider some of the uh, several billion dollars that the Trudeau government gave to fossil fuel corporations last year for oil and gas for um, for orphan well cleanup to be a fossil fuel subsidy because it does subsidize a fossil fuel corporation. The Trudeau government does not con- consider that to be a subsidy. So something that on the surface, like a fossil fuel subsidy phase out that sounds really good is, is still maybe not cause for concern, but still does give one pause and doesn't mean you can give a, a party or an individual, your sort of like full throated support in that way. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of these platforms say really great things and, and I'm still concerned with or wary of almost all of them because you just, it's, it's hard to know where to place your trust anymore, which I know isn't a new thing, especially as it pertains to politics, but I feel like it's becoming increasingly hard to, to trust one's judgments. All right, sweet. <clears throat> and now we're going to take a break and return with Stefan's interview with Eric Bachman from Co2 Rail about, uh, their technological innovation. Well, I'm excited for that technological innovation. It cannot come soon enough because I don't know that I can place my trust in politics anymore. Whoa, crazy statement. Time to innovate. I am here with our feature interview uh, with Eric Bachman, the Principal and Chief Technical Officer of CO2 Rail. Thanks so much for joining us, Eric. Thank you for having me. So we teased this interview a few weeks ago, actually, when chatting with Alex Tamasoli. She mentioned the concept very briefly. And at the time, I got very excited, and she very graciously agreed to connect us. And so we'll get into the technology in a second, but first... I have to find out, uh, you know, what got you interested in this kind of work and, and what's your background? 
Well, that would depend who you ask. My wife likes to tell people about my, my, my ski addiction and says to people, mostly at dinner parties, at the most uh, embarrassing time, she says, uh, just tell a ski bum like Eric that there won't be mad amounts of champagne powder in 50 years, and they'll hurry up and come up with a solution to climate change. Well, it wasn't quite that easy, but I can see the humor in that. The reality is that I worked in the rail industry most of my career trying to shift railroads to a more sustainable path. And then in 2006, I developed some intellectual property on utilizing the tremendous amounts of regenerative braking energy that are generated each tr time a train decelerates. Uh, at that time, and, and even now, this energy is completely wasted by converting it to resistance heat and using really powerful fans to blow it out the top of the locomotives at each stop. And uh, this can be the equivalent amount of energy to power between 15 and 20 homes for an entire day from each stop. So it's been a little bit of a passion of mine to figure out what to do with that, with that wasted energy. Our first patents were to utilize this energy in, in passenger and commuter trains to supply the sustainable carbon neutral energy to the needs of the passenger cars, such as uh, lighting, heating, cooling, and, and regular electrical power. At that time, this was supplied by either a separate generator or, or even siphoning some of the power from the propulsion system, both of which are not ideal. Then I guess in uh, 2013, we started working on solar and decarbonization tech, uh, something that we're still developing. Much of this re revolves around thin film, PV production and uh, large scale energy generation. It's actually pretty exciting, but very recently we began working on a project called CO2 Rail, which you mentioned. And CO2 Rail is a rail based hybrid direct air carbon capture system. Awesome. And so that's basically the primer that we had got from Alex that uh, this technology combines trains with carbon capture. And then sort of she left that as a teaser for your interview. So can you tell us what CO2 Rail does and how does it work? How much time we got? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's see if we can do it in a few minutes. Well, uh, I think the first thing uh, that's important to understand uh, is that locomotives operate a lot like a electric vehicles such as Tesla's, but with an important difference. Instead of being electric vehicles, they are diesel electric vehicles. This means that rather than plugging in the vehicle to charge a battery, like you would do an EV, there is a diesel engine that turns a generator during operation. And this generator constantly provides power to the electric motors attached to each wheel. Second, I think it's important to understand energy braking. Energy braking is where the, the forward kinetic energy, you didn't know you were gonna go back to physics class in this, in this interview, did you? Energy braking is where the, 
forward kinetic energy of a vehicle in motion is converted to electrical energy. To do this, a vehicle must first be powered by electric motors, which EVs and, and locomotives are. Then during braking, the, the motors are switched from taking in electrical energy to induce rotation into having that same rotation induce electrical generation. And I think it's easy to, to understand if you remember that an electric motor and a generator are exactly the same thing. The only difference lies in whether you provide energy to make it rotate or provide rotation to make it generate. They're pretty much interchangeable. Next, we have to dissipate or use that energy in some way. In electric vehicles like Tesla's, it's dissipated by using it to charge a battery. This is called regenerative braking. In rail, in most cases, it is dissipated by passing it through very large resistors and converting it into heat. This is bad because all that carbon neutral energy is wasted. Because of this, both freight and passenger trains waste hundreds of terawatt hours of energy globally each year during their braking maneuvers. Like I mentioned, part of my focus has been to, to make locomotives more like EVs and figure out a way to productively utilize the substantial amount of clean energy. The other part of my focus has been on decarbonization tech. One day during the depths of the COVID isolation, my thoughts on developing sustainable rail tech and my thoughts on developing decarbonization tech must have got all jumbled up. And somehow I put the two together and asked, what if rail infrastructure was used to deploy direct air carbon capture machines and remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? What if a train's onboard generated clean energy could be used to power these machines and have no grid energy demand. It was not long before a number of happy thoughts sprang to mind about clear advantages in a system like that. Yeah, I, I gotta say, this is the part that I found super fascinating because when I first heard about this technology, I presumed that the incentive had come from a way to limit the amount of energy required to sort of bring air through the storage machine. And that has been the impetus. And they're like, oh, well, if it's already moving, it can collect all that air really easily. And then only after re-chatting with you and, and reading about some of the work that you're doing, did I realize that it actually started from this realization that there's a huge externality of all this energy being wasted by trains everywhere. And it came really from this sort of noticing of like, man, there's tons and tons and tons of energy out there just being wasted. And how can we use that productively? Really was the first seed that led you to this next step. I, I yeah. Completely flipped that's my not, understanding. That's not, a, that's not an uncommon first reaction. Almost, I would say almost everybody looks at it and says the impotence was the ramjet flow of the air into the collection chamber through the vents. And while that is a, a benefit, it's a very, very, very small benefit and actually has a cost as well because, you know, you're extending up a parachute basically into the slipstream of the, of the moving train and it's going to create 
not a whole heck of a lot, but it does create a, an amount of drag, amount of aerodynamic drag. But yeah, that's not an uncommon thought, but you're absolutely right. The whole underpinnings of this concept were to do something with that massive amounts of wasted energy. And we're talking multiples of what the Three Gorges Dam in China puts out every year. Right. Yeah. Which is obviously in the huge. So huge, huge. Um, and, and we don't have to flood out, you know, 5 million people and relocate. Exactly. Yeah. This can all be done without, without displacing anybody, which is obviously ideal. So for our listeners who may not be as aware um, of, I think, I think our listeners understand the concept of trains. I'm not going to say if one understands the concept of how actually direct air capture works. We've talked about it a bit on the show, but it's still obviously it's a new technology. Are you able to give us a, a high level explanation of how it happens and how it works? I've worked, I, I've heard other people describe direct air capture and it's good, but I've worked very hard to come up with the gold medal direct air capture explanation. You ready? So the best way to describe direct air capture or DAC, D-A-C-C, direct air carbon capture, is to imagine a, a HEPA filter that you might have in your home. In that case, a fan moves the air in your room through the filter and it traps out dust or pollen particles. And then every now and then you might remove the filter, wash away those trapped particles, which makes room for more particles to be captured. It's a, almost exactly the same way with, with, with DAC systems. Powerful fans move air through a filter media, just like with, in a HEPA filter, but instead of trapping dust and power, pollen particles, the media is chemically attracted to CO2 molecules, and then they snag any of that, that pass. This is what's called the absorption stage. And then just like a HEPA filter, it per periodically has to be cleaned of the captured CO2. This stage or the desorption stage can be seen as a polar opposite of the first, where the objective is to not only halt the ambient airflow but also vacate most of the residual air within the collection chamber. At this point, the CO2 absorbent media is ready to be absorbed of its captured CO2. So imagine turning on the water faucet and you're just about to clean your HEPA filter. This desorption can be initiated in, in several ways, but most current systems use heat or steam to, to trigger the release rather than water from your faucet. And then as the CO2 begins to flow from the absorbent, the chamber is pumped down, the CO2 is compressed, then cooled, liquefied, probably compressed again, and stored in a high pressure reservoir for disposition in one form or another. So at this point, you have a large quantity of amazingly pure CO2 that can be transported to an end user for feedstock use in, in the circular carbon economy, such as in manufacturing, chemical production, or even synthetic fuels. However, the primary goal of this whole project is to harvest enough CO2 so that we can permanently sequester it deep underground where it will eventually bond with rocks and minerals to become carbonates. 
And eventually, as enough carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere and permanently sequestered underground, the atmospheric concentrations of CO2 will begin to drop slowly, but drop nonetheless, as to the risk of of serious climate change. After we pass uh, a certain threshold, climate change risk will begin to, to diminish, which is at this stage, practically unfathomable, but you know, project yourself out 50 years, 60 years, and the reports are not how much the CO2 level parts per million is going up, but rather how much the CO2 parts per million is coming down. That is an absolute possibility and probably a likelihood. Like I said, this will not be a quick process and many of our plans and projections extend out many decades. I was just talking to my wife about it. it's somewhat strange to work on a project that won't be at full scale until I'm 103 years old. That just goes to show how much this immense project is a team effort and far bigger than any one person, any one company, or even any one country. It is a huge project and a long-term project. Yeah. And I think that's, that is something I find quite interesting and important to note when we're talking about carbon capture, and I think we might get to it later in the interview, but just briefly, the the fact that there's a pushback often about carbon capture and storage or carbon capture from say, what if like it, it's a distraction from all the actual mitigating uh, we have to do right now from not just using more fossil fuels. And yet when you look at something like the IPCC report that indicates that they're, they are betting on a certain amount of carbon capture working by 2050. And so the, it, obviously there has to be a massive, massive scale down of all fossil fuel use as quickly as possible. And yet it strikes me as pretty clear that long-term we are going to have to be throwing every type of technology at this. And so developing technology now that will be helpful to our grandkids, as you say, is a secondary need that we have to do. Like it's, it, we can't rely on one thing at this point. We got to throw the kitchen sink at this. And it includes the ability to to start really figuring out this technology now while also rapidly scaling down fossil fuels at the exact Absolutely. Now, I, I hear that all the time, and it's kind of frustrating because the the talking points for people that are against direct air capture, you know, and, and they do have some, they do have some valid points. I'm not against what, uh, some of what they're, what they're, what they're trying to get across, but when they say that oh, this is oil companies behind this and, and it's a distraction so they can you know, use this carbon dioxide for enhanced oil recovery, which if we can help it, and we're looking into ways to, to do that, if we can help it, we're going to make sure that to the best of our ability, our, none of our carbon is used for enhanced oil recovery. But my background is actually decarbonization. My background is solar. You know, my background is everything that they're saying that we should be working on. We're still working on that and we're working on this. So we're not an oil company. We're actually decarbonization to the core. And this is something that we need. I mean, I think a hundred percent of the IPC pathways to keep under 1.5 degrees have a really strong role for direct air capture. And, and I think 85% of, of those pathways at living at, at two degrees increase include direct air capture. It's something that, I mean, if we, if we want 
to, you know, maintain our way of life. It's something that we're absolutely going to have to uh, do at one point or another. And just like anything else, it's a lot, lot easier to, to do it in advance of when you really, really need it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump back to the technology with that segue, because when I think of direct air capture, I think of these giant fans. And that's the one that just, you know, opened up, I believe, got getting some attention opening up last week. And this is obviously different. So you mentioned a bunch of advantages of having it on rail. What are these advantages? And of course, the extra free, almost carbon neutral energy that comes from the braking part. Well, that's, that's the big one. I mean, that, that's, that's the big daddy advantage. But let me take it back to the depths of COVID when there was, was no vaccine and, and we were all quarantined and, and going crazy. I remember it, it happened on one day when those two projects I was working on kind of coalesced and merged and became one. But almost immediately, I sat down and wrote, I think I wrote out 10 or 12 just really obvious advantages. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll run through a, a few of them here. Of course, the, the main advantage is the su substantial carbon neutral energy generated every time a train comes to a stop or decelerates. This can add up to as much as 20,000 kilowatt hours per day in some trains. 20,000 kilowatt hours per day. That is a lot of energy, enough to power approximately 750 homes for an entire day. And we, in our system, we take this energy in rather than completely waste it by converting it to heat, we take it in, store it in a large battery array, about the same capacity as 24 high-end Tesla models. The, the difference is that it will charge and discharge many times per day and is not dependent on off-duty uh, charging cycles. A lot of people think that, you know, these will get charged at night like a Tesla and come out and, and run for a while. No, these get charged every time the locomotive comes to a stop or decelerates and and we're also looking at putting solar cells on compatible rail cars to even add a little bit more energy to the mix we're going to be able to hopefully store all of that energy that's created by that train an entire day and the thing to remember is that everything takes energy to work and energy is the primary limiting factor in everything that you might want to accomplish from the energy that you personally have to make great radio shows to the energy available for let's say a rocket to get into space everything is limited in one way or another by energy it's the same way with direct air capture the more energy that is available the more carbon dioxide can be harvested from the atmosphere it's that simple when the energy runs out the process has to stop so yeah and energy is Uber important. In the same way, efficiency, which is the flip side of the coin of total energy, efficiency is just as important. Every system must work in harmony and use as little energy as possible to get your job done. The thing about direct air capture that makes it even more challenging is that it can't just be any old energy. It has to be no, or at the very least, low carbon energy. Since your objective is to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, it wouldn't make much sense at all to power that operation with energy obtained from a source that had to emit carbon dioxide 
to produce the power he needed. So carbon neutral energy is the name of the game with, with direct air capture. And uh, Cote rail is primarily powered by regenerative braking energy. This is pretty much the definition of an ideal carbon neutral energy source. Now, now we're, we're recording this uh, in advance, but I can almost hear the screams through the radio. But what about the carbon emitted by the locomotives to get the train into motion? Well, that is a great observation and very true. The locomotives will indeed emit carbon dioxide from their exhaust during operation. Absolutely. But the important thing to remember is that CO2 rail is only put in operation with already running trains in regular service and operating as they would otherwise normally operate. This is extremely important to understand. CO2 rail is not going to be operating a train going somewhere unless there was a train scheduled to go there in the first place. In this way, the incremental carbon debt from its operation is very small. For instance, if there were 99 cars on a train going from Toronto to Calgary and you added a CO2 rail car to it, that CO2 rail car would then be indirectly responsible for about one one hundredth of the train's total emissions. So very small. A very small carbon debt is incurred for a very, very large carbon payback. The second thing that came to mind almost immediately is that roughly two-thirds of rail cars have a large roof section that would be well-suited for the application of uh, solar cells. And in some trains, these could be as large as an entire football field with significant energy output, that which would all, again, be fed into the battery array and contribute to going back to when the energy runs out, the, the process stops. All that solar energy fed back into the battery, even though it's not a huge amount, it, it will allow us to, to then capture 15% or more carbon dioxide. So we already talked about this a little bit, but the obvious clear advantage, and it is an advantage, even though it's a small one, is that rather than having powerful en energy-hungry fans to move air through the system, you can have forward-facing intakes, which extend up in the slipstream of the moving train and move air through the system with no direct energy being required. Now, there's a little bit of, of added fuel cost, but it's exceedingly minimal. I think the, the fourth thing that sprang to mind immediately was that a system like this built around the rail network would would have the entire transportation chain built into the process from square transport of the harvested CO2 to its final destination will be optimized, efficient, and implemented at far lower cost than if you were just a direct air capture plant and, and a customer of a railroad. The next one's pretty big. It's so big, we have yet to be able to quantify it. There's no land-based footprint with CO2 rail. You might have the occasional building that needs to be erected for service and maintenance. But outside of that, with a mobile system, it's not going to be permanently marring our landscapes or cityscapes and all the real estate requirements that are, that are required when you build these systems on land. 
Oh, here's an interesting fact I thought you might like. If you lined up all the rail cars in the world, you would have a train of about 6 million rail cars. And that train would stretch three times around the earth at the equator. Did you ever think that that, I've been in the rail industry a long time and I just recently did the calculations on that. Never knew that, but three times around the equator. That's huge. Now, with that said, besides the occasional time you're stopped by a train at a railroad crossing, trains, locomotives, rail cars stay pretty much out of sight and out of mind, even though there are many millions of them that would stretch around the globe many times. Unlike land-based direct air capture, and I'm, I'm totally in fa favor of what Climeworks is doing. I was actually very, very excited last week when they started operation, but you know, with, with with land-based direct air capture, you have that serious land use problem. The sixth obvious benefit that came to mind was that rail is the most efficient form of scale transportation and is three to five times more fuel efficient per ton than truck. On the passenger side, rail is, I didn't even do the, the calculation in, in advance of this more discussion here because it wasn't even worth my time. So I just left it as indescribably more efficient than air travel and about seven times more fuel efficient than auto travel. So any increase in rail traffic away from less efficient forms of transportation will certainly have a positive environmental impact. The next thought I had when I was writing down the, the pros and cons of a system like this was that this one's actually really exciting that certain of our CO2 rail cars could be configured to remove the emissions from the locomotives themselves. So people would place one of these CO2 rail cars directly behind the locomotive. And, and of course you'd have to do some uh, very minor exhaust modifications. So we estimate that would probably capture you know, 75, 80% of the emissions from locomotive. This would make rail tra transportation, which is already in the most efficient form of scale transportation, nearly carbon neutral in its operation to remove CO2 from the air. So think about that for a second, carbon neutral in its operation to remove CO2. So it's zero plus a negative. That math doesn't really work out. It doesn't really express how exciting this is, but Carbon neutral, carbon negative on the state platform, very exciting. And creating the, the world's first, and I think only conceivable carbon negative mode of transportation. Carbon negative mode of transportation. That is, I don't want to say game changing, but that is game changing. And if we envision a time in the not too distant future when rail may transition entirely to alternative fuels, such as hydrogen or move towards broader deployment of sustainably sourced rail electrification, Kochi rail will work even better. It doesn't rely on diesel. It doesn't rely on, on the status quo. The only thing it relies on is a train is in motion, which I'm fairly confident that's 
the point of trains, so I'm not too worried about that going away. And finally, the coaching rail system will work with both freight and passenger operations. Of course, there are far fewer passenger trains and freight trains, especially in North America. However, what they lack in quantity, they make up for in speed and number of stops, which all adds to daily energy output. So uh, imagine that your daily commute to work by train could also contribute to removing carbon dioxide from the environment. This is super exciting. Not only does commuting by train rather than car help the environment, but it would also contribute negative emissions directly removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Exciting stuff. For sure. So if I can try to repeat back these advantages that you had referenced to us, just so I can confirm I'm right. You basically were talking about the fact that you can get cheap carbon neutral power from braking. There's space for solar panels uh, on top of these trains as well to help power it. We don't need extra energy for fans. You can optimize the transportation of the CO2 because it's already moving. There's no new actual footprint required to actually have these exist, unlike the footprint of traditional DACs that would take over space. And then also the, anything that encourages train travel is already an advantage in, in reduced carbon because they are the most efficient type of travel in comparison to cars and planes and everything else. Is that roughly those that a decent summary of the advantages? The really exciting one I think you forgot that I'm going to interject is the fact that this, this system will work on both freight and passenger commuter locomotives. Right. And I think it will be just super exciting and really bring awareness to the whole environmental movement broadly for people to commute to work, knowing that not only are they reducing their carbon footprint by taking the train rather than driving, but also that train trip downtown or back home will be absorbing tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. I think that is just super exciting. Yeah, for sure. So because there's so much here, we are going to do a second part of this interview that's going to come up in a couple of weeks. But if in the meantime, between these two interviews, people want to keep track of your work or find out more information about what uh, Co2 Rail does, where can they find you? Sure. Much more information can be found on our website, obviously. Uh, we're at, at Co2Rail.com. And we're also pretty active on, on Twitter. Our handle there is at Co2Rail, and that's C-O-2-R-A-I-L. And our General email inquiry addresses admin at co2rail.com. Another thing I would like to mention that is if, if anybody would like to support our efforts to combat climate change, you can help us by sponsoring an amount of your personal CO2 emissions through our website. It's a brand new portal to be able to do that. Just that is not a carbon offset certificate. I don't want anybody to think that by donating here, that an equivalent amount will be sequestered. Not at this point, down the road, absolutely. But at this point, we, we're asking for support and we can walk you through trying to determine what your personal carbon footprint is and maybe think about sponsoring that and, and helping us out in our efforts to get this, get this rolling. Amazing. Uh, well. Thank you so much, Eric Bachman, the Principal and Chief Technical Officer of Co2 Rail. For those of you who want to listen, hear more about this, we will have part two of this interview, which includes things like, can this scale? And what does it look like? Which obviously 
two pretty important things to know. So come join us in a couple of weeks when we come back to this conversation. But for now, thank you so much, Eric, for, for joining us on the show and have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Cheers.